0: Well, our last section today is on the Savior's assurance of salvation, and we're going to look at some familiar grace passages, powerful grace passages. There are plenty of those. Uh, but a little while back, after I had taken a little bit of uh, Greek, some, some Greek exegesis, I would picked up a book by Jack Cottrell called Bip- uh, "Baptism: a, uh, a New Testament View." A New Testament study, and it was a, uh, I mean, just a great book. Actually, a biblical study. It's called. It's a great book, but it was a lot of exegesis all throughout. And I remember my wife at the time looking at me, saying, "Is this just some nerdy adventure on your part, or I mean, do you think maybe you should be reading something that's kind of like nourish your soul more than just a, you know all this deep exegetical stuff?" And but you know what was interesting is I went through passage after passage and spent so much time looking at it from an original language standpoint, even an exegetical standpoint, it was pretty fantastic by the time I ended. As a matter of fact, because every passage was just so much more abundantly clear as I made my way through it, by the end, I felt like I just wanted to like shout from the rooftop, like it's all true. Oh my goodness, it's all true, and it's all so clear and it's real, and I really am saved. And I have no doubt about it. And that kind of that nagging wonder, no, there's no need for it at all. Oh, thank you, God. And it really was just a great, great look at some things. And you know, maybe some of that joy that I had of being able to look at some of this, I'd love to be able to share with you guys now. Uh, And and look at some of the passages that we have held dear, but sometimes we've not held them dear enough because we've used them in a, um, what what I want to say, like a pugilistic manner, you know, like we're we're ready to fight about it rather than just enjoy it with with regards to to baptism and grace and forgiveness and uh, new life that that we've been given. So look look with me over in Colossians chapter 2. verse 11. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that Colossians and Ephesians like, have a lot of parallel sections to them, like one after another after another? And when scholars try to line up Ephesians to Colossians and show all of the parallel content, the section of Scripture that Colossians 2, 11 through 14, is aligned with is actually Ephesians 2. And it is the section that you've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. It is a gift of God. Uh, and that, that is actually the, the great parallel to what we're going to see here in this great passage on grace. So Colossians 2:11 and 12. Uh, through, uh, actually, uh, further we'll go. It says in verse 11, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Sometimes we don't always look at that as one section, even though it is uh, in an amazing continuation of thought, especially where where he talks about the circumcision of your, not of your flesh, and later he says the uncircumcision of your flesh. These are all meant to be tied together as, as one continuous idea in the argument that Paul is, is making here um but some of the things that are are interesting is that some people will say well you know in this passage it shows you that that baptism is in a sense equated with circumcision as circumcision was to the old testament so baptism is to the new testament but circumcision was a work and so baptism isn't really what saves you because we're saved by grace through faith not by works so no one can boast However, at a a closer look at this, he is saying that this is not that circumcision. This is not the circumcision of the Old Covenant. And the way that he talks about it is it is not a circumcision performed by the hands of men. And for anyone that would argue that baptism is a work of God, it is interesting that every passage where the idea of work and baptism are combined, it is always roundly denied by mostly Paul uh, and even Jesus that baptism could be a work done by men and that it is in any way a work that we do. And a lot of people you know, will use the parallel passage to this in Ephesians 2, saying, well, I don't actually believe that you're saved by baptism. I believe you're saved by the blood of Jesus. Well, well of course, I mean, how insulting is that? Well, what do you think is, is the real driver of all of that? Of course we're saved by the blood of Jesus, but there's some sort of instrumentality that God does bring our way here. And, but then they'll quote from, from the parallel passage, well, yeah, but we're saved by grace, not by works, so no one can boast. It is a gift of God, it is a gift of God so no one can boast. And, and, but then they'll add, and baptism's a work, so you can't be saved by that. Well, that part that you just added on the end is your thought, not the Bible's thought. And here's one of the great passages in our Bible, which happens to be the parallel but by almost most scholars of to Ephesians 2. That parallel statement here, and, and the reason that it is, is because of this this word um, that is described of our baptism. Our baptism is described as I, I don't even have it transliterated for you, sorry. Uh, a poitus or a poito, uh, And it is the word that is here saying not a work done by the hands of men. For example, Stephen in his great speech before the Sanhedrin, before he is stoned, saying that, you know, who, who could think of God as being confined to temples made by the hands of men? Uh, Hebrews talks a lot even about the, the idea of, of things made by the hands of men. It is the kind of the quintessential technical word of a work, a work done by men that, that really doesn't profit anything with regards to something supernatural uh, in, in uh, in efficacy, in, in what is able to bring about. But here it is saying that baptism, rather than being something made by the hands of men, done by the hands of men, is something that is clearly, technically, not a work done by the hands of men. Because a acharopoitus is a, a compound word. Ah, in the beginning of any Greek word, is kind of like un in the beginning of an English word. And it is a negator. So it is not, you know, this is the beginning of it, and then the next that we have here is chiro, chiras is hand, is, is not something that is done by the hand, and, and poito is, is work, so it is, or you know, to do something. So it is not something done by men, not something done by the hands of men, but rather it says, this is something done by Christ. And as great a, a technical term as Paul could have brought to bear, For anyone that would ever question, is baptism indeed a work? The answer is definitively, resoundingly, it is not a work done by the hands of men. Circumcision may be for sure, but it is not that kind of circumcision. It is not that circumcision of the literal flesh. It is the circumcision of our fleshliness. It is the ability to actually change our sinful nature. And by the way, for, you know, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, I was saved. But then later on, because I, I knew it was right to get baptized, th- then I got baptized, uh, you know, a- after that fact. Well, and, and I'll ask, well, when were you born again? Well, I was born again when I, you know, came to the altar call and, and had that experience. And I like, well, when were you baptized? Well, a little while after that, I, I thought it was the, the, the right thing to do. And, you know, this passage actually makes that a very odd idea because, when is it that you need to be buried with Christ in baptism? You need to be buried with Christ in baptism when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of flesh. When you are dead is when you are buried. When you have been born again, when you've been made alive, would it make any sense for then God to say, congratulations, you've been made alive, now it's time for the burial. What an odd thought. For that to be, but that's what everybody practices who thinks that they have actually been made alive through some sort of a prayer or teary eyed confession that they might make, a a recent construct of of, uh, modern Christianity to actually have some sort of an idea along those lines. But but because they kind of buy into that, maybe that was the time, then they have to figure out what to do with, with some of these passages, this one in particular. But it's not just the, the depth of God saying that, yes, I saved you, and I, and I saved you with great clarity here, not, not by a work done by the hands of men, uh, but what happened when you were buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the working of God? What happened then is, verse 13, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and you know what happened? God made you alive with Christ he forgave us all our sins and canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. All of that happens when you were buried with Christ in baptism, this passage says. And that means that your sins were forgiven. You were made alive and the, the uh, certificate of indebtedness against you was taken away. I know some people will look at that phrase, that certificate of indebtedness, and think that he's talking about the abolishment of the Old Covenant. That's not what that is talking about. It is actually the idea of an autographon. Autographon is autograph. You know, it's actually an IOU that you would write out. And it, the, the best estimates are that at the time of this writing, the Roman Empire was about a third slaves. They weren't slaves in the nastiness of of uh, European and American slavery, it was more of these idea of bond servants. They could have had nasty owners for sure, but a lot of it was kind of a, a voluntary entering into or falling on hard times and entering into. The thing, though, that brought most people into slavery and even their their, their kids uh, were these autograph these IOUs that, that you would write. And normally what would happen with, uh, w- with these IOUs is that you would... Uh, let's say you're, you're a farmer... You don't know if the crops are going to come in. You need to actually take out a loan, hoping that, man, if this crop comes in, everything's going to be made right. I want it to be fantastic. I don't know where else to go. I'm going to lose everything if I don't do this. So I better, I better borrow this money. So you, uh, you, you borrow the money. But in order to borrow the money, the creditor wants to see a little something-something. What are you going to put up for it? And if you got nothing but a fallow fallen field that is you know, now just another kind of uh, plain that has been taken out by, by some sort of a famine. Well, then I want something else, and that something else might might actually be you. I want you to actually be uh, be part of it. And and what would happen is, is that when it was when it was time uh, for you to pay up in this IOU, so you'd write it out this autograph on. This is exactly what they're referring to here when he says in verse. Uh, when he says he's forgiven our sins, verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us. That charge of our legal indebtedness, that long phrase, is just autograph in the original language. It's this IOU, this official legal document that you have actually entered into with your creditor. And it might be, all right, I'm going to pay you back, uh, you know, 400 denarii by such and such a date. And if I don't, well, then this is, this is what you get to do. And when that date rolls around, and uh, you, you actually don't have it, and you are coming back from those fields, and you come back to you know, your, your, your home, and you turn the corner, you come back home, and if you walking back from those fields, and you see the autographon nailed over your doorpost, that's the worst moment of your life. Because likely what they wanted in that exchange for, for the money that you had to borrow is not you. Because you aren't worth quite as much. They, they wouldn't want me. I'm going to be 49 next month. I don't have that many productive years ahead of me. But I got a strapping 22-year-old, a 19-year-old, even better, I have 11-year-olds. You know who they want, the creditors? They want one of them, or all of them, depending on what the terms of the agreement are. And, and that is the way a lot of people ended up into a bond bondservanthood in, um, in the first century, well, many centuries. But if you come home, and you see that, and you have a, a gut punch unlike any other. Probably what? Fall to your knees realizing, is it that time already? I, I wasn't able to put it together. I thought I'd have another chance to talk. I didn't. And now you, you wonder, you open the door and they're gone. The kids are gone. I mean, how, how terrible is, is that? That's the imagery that Paul is actually eliciting here as he's talking about the charge of legal indebtedness that stands against us. But that's as awful, I think, a human experience as, as one could begin to conjure up. It's nothing compared to not having our salvation. Condemnation is, is so much worse than just the charges of, of legal indebtedness that would occur that we would bring about you know, through our own hand. But it is that worst of all pictures that Paul plays on that helps us to, um, helps us to appreciate what it is that, that Jesus has done for us. And that, you know, so we have this charge of legal indebtedness that is against us. And, and he says here in verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now, this word taken away is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 3.19, when he talks about, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This idea of wiped away was, was used because in the first century there was no acid in the ink. And without acid, it wouldn't have a bite into the papyrus or the vellum, more likely a vellum, you know, a kind of an animal skin that would have been used. John would be fired up about that. Um, that, that that you, would then, that you would then use, all the more reason to go hunting, really, so he would have more things to write on. <laughs> it's like, I need a journal, hon. I'm going out. <laughs> but, but because the, uh, the ink did not have acid, it would not be bit into, and so you would be able to then reuse those, those parchments uh, again and again, and you just simply wipe it away. Uh, and, and, and thus our sins are wiped away in Acts 3.19 in this same idea. So here when it says that Jesus has taken this and wiped it away, now there's no greater picture, conversely, than turning the corner, coming home and wondering, oh my goodness, I know you know what? It's, it's the 12th of Nisan. Oh, what am I going to do? All right, let me run home because I don't know if it's going to be up or not. I don't know if the kids are going to be there or not. And you run home, and there it is above your doorpost But the greatest thing that you could ever see is it wiped away. Because then that means that certificate of legal indebtedness has been wiped away. It no longer is a charge hanging over your head, literally, any longer. You have been set free. There's no longer kind of that charge hanging over your kid's head anymore. And a lot of this all comes down to the kids, really, with with bond servanthood. It's no longer hanging over their heads, either Oh, I mean, is there a greater feeling? And then you're wondering, like, what happened? How did this happen? I, you know, you open the door, to make sure that they're there. They come, they rush out, they point to, them, look, Dad, look, look. And you know, it's like the greatest day of coming home from, from from the work and this joy and singing and praising God for all of that. And you find out that somebody intervened. You're like, but it was such a huge debt. Like, who would who would do that? And you realize, my goodness, I have I have a Redeemer. I have somebody that would intervene in my life and. It would, it would be the greatest celebration that you could ever have. That's the picture that Paul is trying to get across to us of the grace that has been given. We didn't do anything. All we did is just incur debt. We were not even make right on it. But yet we can come back and, and it could be wiped away. And, and, and moreover, not only is it wiped away, but it never even was then any longer on our door. But it was never kind of hanging over our heads any longer. We didn't even have to worry about that. Why? Because it's been nailed to the cross. How was it nailed to the cross? Because Jesus was nailed to the cross. And our sins were, were, were imputed to Christ to be able to have that. A, a couple of years back, we were inspired by this verse. And the, the men on Good Friday got together in, uh, at Old Dominion University. And we, we actually constructed a big cross up on the stage. And, uh, and all the men, as they arrived, there was kind of candles and stuff. I know it was guys, but we did candles. It was interesting. But anyway, so they, they all come in and we we prepared these pieces of paper and we had them all laminated, and then we gave them like overhead marker pens. And as, as everybody came in, we shared from this. And then we asked everybody to, to, to write some of their most recent sins on uh, on these pieces of paper. Uh, and, and so they did, as we, as we taught, we prayed, we shared, and, and, and everybody wrote this. And we gathered them all up. And, and then we, we continued to pray about you know, the great events of Good Friday. And as we prayed, I remember even standing and praying, and, but there were up front about three different guys and they were all nailing these, these pieces of paper to the cross while we were up there. All these little kind of autographons of ourselves. All these little certificates of indebtedness that stood against us. And I, and I remember even praying through some of my sins and, and even just hearing the nails being driven into the cross. Even as I, I prayed, that was, it was really, really a moving time. And, and then we... we, we uh, took a moment to then teach on grace for a moment, and even, even on this passage, even the second half of this passage, of, of this wiping away and the de- definitiveness of that. and then we prayed again, and, and then the guys that were up front had, had just taken cloths, and they, they quickly went through as we were praying, uh, and they, they went through and they, they wiped away every single word from all whatever it was, 200 plus little autographons all over that. And so we went from the, and, and you know what? that cross was an ugly terrible, yet beautiful sight. I mean, there was pornographic references up there. There was cheating. There was lying. There was I mean, all, all sorts of just darkness, darkness, darkness. You think, oh my goodness, is grace, that? could it really be? I mean, to that degree, could it really be? And I remember then as we prayed and we studied out grace and we spent that time in depth of that, and then we opened our eyes and there was that cross and it was just glaring white and there were there were lights coming off of it you know because it was the laminated paper i mean it was just just beautiful and and literally glory just just shining off of of that cross and it was really hard to accept we had to keep going back to the scriptures and really recognize no this is really really the case that it has been wiped away it has been taken away it has been put on the cross this is really the case for each and every one of us. And this is what we've been given. And it is astounding that this is, is, is what we really have. And so it is. It's been, it's been wiped away and nailed to the cross. I mean, in the first century, I can't imagine that they could have had more of an emotional connection to grace than, than that event of, of seeing or not seeing an autograph on waiting to, to, to be uh, leveled against them. Um, but to know that, no, th- this is the experience of it being gone, wiped away. It's, it's not even applicable in our lives. And That is exactly the depth of the grace that, that, that Jesus gives us. I want to talk uh, another instance, though, still with regards to this idea of, well, yeah, but there are some that really are kind of steadfast in the, the, the idea that it's a work. Look, look in Titus 3. It's another great passage that really rails against the idea of baptism being a work. Starting in verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, the argument, of course, will be, well, is that really referring to baptism? And I'll talk about that in a moment, but for now, we can just trust that actually this is a reference to baptism. Uh, and it was, it was roundly considered as a, ba- a reference to baptism by all centuries of the Christian church. Uh, but it does recognize that he saved us not by any righteous works that we have done. Not saved by our works, saved by grace. Or as it's put here, you were saved by his mercy. And then reiterated, he saved us through, and now this is a, a word or a preposition, dia of instrumentality, through the washing of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. This, um, Yes, we're saved by his grace, but what's the means by which that we are saved? Well, clearly here, the means by which we are saved is the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Or said another way, the means by which we are saved is through baptism. Now, well, I mean, is, you know, is that some still then a work that we do? It is not. The very passage says there is no work involved in this salvation. And the fact that we are baptized is actually just us receiving the gift. You just receive the gift the way that God wants you to receive the gift by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, if somebody were to give you a gift and they want to make it clear that this is a gift that I'm giving you, it's simply because you're great. It's not because you've done some work. You know, maybe your kids could think, well, maybe it's because I I mowed the lawn. But if you want to make it obvious that it's a gift, well, you'll do the things that make it look like a gift, right? Maybe you'll, you'll gift wrap it, right? Because if you get it and it's all gift wrap, you're not going to think, well, this is uh, received for services done in kind. You know I mean? There's no idea of that. It's like, wow, this is really nice of you. This is clearly a gift that you've given me. Well, God, likewise, wants to make it obvious to us that we're receiving a gift, and he wants it also to be so much greater a gift because it's certain, and with that certainty comes security. I've, I've studied the Bible. I'm sure you have as well. With lots of people who have, let's say, responded to an altar call. And, and they come forward and they, and they you know, kind of respond to what the, the preacher is saying. And, you know, and he does the same thing every time. I've been to plenty of these. And, and all he does is he exploits obvious needs. He's like, you know, there's somebody out there right now and you're going through financial hardship. You don't know what's going to happen you don't even know really where, where you're going to be able to pay for next month's rent. Even the grocery, you're not even sure where they're going to come from right now. You're, you're at the end of your rope. You're hoping that you can hang on. Well, you know what? God is telling me that you're out there right now. Of course he's out there. Why don't you talk about a, a marriage bump while you're at it? Why don't you talk about friction between kids and parents? Why don't you talk? Uh, wow. But, you know, sadly, they're, they're, they're trained in that and, and they imitate others in that. And so it's the same exploitation that goes on. And then it's the really discomfort. I'll wait. I'll wait. I don't know if you've been to an altar call. This happens all the time. You know, nobody comes and, you know, and then he starts singing just as I am and he throws out another thing. Hi, right, how about, you know what? I feel like you feel like your life has no meaning you're, you're, you're bound in insignificance. You've thought about hurting yourself. You probably even, you know, they go on, I mean, stuff that, you know, oh, and, 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 and then he waits, and then he waits. And then, you know, then some, finally somebody comes forward of, you know, with one of these obvious mining of, of felt needs that comes in. And then, and then he kind of gives them the, the, just just invite Jesus into your heart, just invite him into your heart. You know, and, and, uh, and so they do, you know, Jesus, come into my heart and save me. Come in, be with me. I'll be with you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for saving me. And then they walk away as though, that was a salvation experience. Um, however, because I've studied the Bible with, you know, countless people have done that, I then always ask them, was that the only time you've ever done that? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, no. I've, I, yeah, probably, I don't know, man, seven, maybe, eight. Yeah. Oh, I, like, where's the security in that? And, and, and I, well, why'd you do it again? It was like, well, you know, the first time it didn't really take, I guess, because like, I didn't really see the change in my life and, so the next time I felt like, if I just like really like cry and like really go intense for it, and I'm like, who's working now? Right? I mean, I mean, you gotta like work yourself up and conjure all this up, and maybe if I'm like, 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 like you know, contrite enough and intense enough, then maybe now, then, then I'll get the gift of God, and then, then I'll get the grace. But sadly, that's what people are left with when they go outside the lines of, of, of biblical doctrine to make up something on a fly. Uh, just because it, it kind of found its way into tradition somewhere or another, and now it's just kind of, kind of accepted, you know? It's, it's like Jerry Seinfeld says with uh, dry cleaning. It's like, dry clean, there's no such thing as dry cleaning. I think we just accept it because there's so many dry cleaners out there. Like, you, know, you, get a, you scratch something, like that's dry cleaning, that's about it. <laughs> but then I mean, it's just because so many people do it, maybe we just accept it. Uh, the, the, you know, with, with this idea of the altar call. But you know what's the beauty of grace? not only is the depth of grace what we just saw there with the autograph on and the complete washing away, but God wants us to know with certainty that we have received this gift. And so it's not having a nice fleeting thought. It's actually having a depth of an experience that allows you to actually be buried with Christ, risen with him, and brought to new life. Being born of water and spirit. And to be able to give us that, that beautiful, definite ability to be able to have that. And so just because God tells us to receive the gift the way he wants us to receive it, well, we've got to realize that Well, maybe because he's telling us to receive it in that way, there's something really special to it. Would any kid, having opened up that gift in their wildest imagination, say, I don't need to thank you for that iPad. I earned it. I unwrapped that present. I did the work of unwrapping. So it's mine now. Don't tell me when and when I cannot use it. I earned that. That wasn't easy to get through, you know. used a lot of tape on that package. But I got it. I feel good about myself. Right? No, nobody would ever, ever, ever think that. Nor would we ever think, I got baptized, so, you know, I earned it. No, who, who's ever, ever thought that? No, we, we actually humbled ourselves to receive it in the way that God has called us to receive it. And it's the clarity and the certainty and the experiential component of it that is all part of the gift. It's all part of God's grace that we're able to get it in such a way that we walk away certain. I have bad days. I have dark moments. But I never doubt that on March 17th of 1993 that I was born again of water and spirit. I never, ever, ever doubt that because God gave it to me in such an abundantly clear, precious, amazing way. Thank you, God, uh, for that. Now, some people may argue, well, yeah, 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 not a word, not a word, not a word, I get to your saying here, but this is not about baptism. This is just about spirit baptism that's going on here because it, it says that it's the washing of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's just kind of a, a whole spiritual thing. Well, that word washing in terms of washing of rebirth is the Greek word lutron. And here's what's interesting. Some words in English work well to be used metaphorically. You know, we could talk about the ship of state or getting your house in order. Um, but, but other things don't kind of work quite as well. We don't, we don't talk about the, you know, the, the, the skateboard of our lives or, you know, there's just certain objects that don't lend them. I don't know why. They just don't somehow or another. Well, the Greek word for lutron, this washing of rebirth, is it figurative? Is it not? Well, the, the, the word Lutron basically means a big wash basin, a big tub of water is, is what it means. So in other words, he's saying we weren't saved by any works. We were saved by his mercy. We were saved through that big water basin of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's interesting, because some words, again, have some sort of a metaphorical uh, proclivity. Uh, I just came up with that, and I'm happy about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it when I can get it. But, but anyway, some words do, some words don't. And, you know, some people have a way with words, and other people, oh, not have way. But, but anyway, Lutron... <laughs> That's from Steve Barton, let's get small. Uh, <laughs> Lutron... Is, uh, is a word in all extant, all existing Greek literature that we have in the Bible, out of the Bible, secular Greek, you name it, all Greek literature that we have, it is never used metaphorically. It is interesting. I mean, it didn't improve my case absolutely, and it could always, always be in this case, but it seems as though the overwhelming preponderance, if it's, if it's always used that way, both by those in the church and those out of the church, well, then chances are that we were saved by the big washtub of rebirth and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And it is clear. It is definite. We don't have to wonder, am I saved? Am I not? Did it happen? Did it not? Yes, it really did happen. Thank you, God, for making that clear. Um, I'm going to try and fly through a little bit here. You know, we This is the, the good old diagram that we always use. Here we are, dead in sin. Here, here's Jesus with our sins. And then... Um, our, our sins are, as the, as the Bible will say in Romans 4, uh, imputed or credited to Christ, right? And so and I say this because sometimes people say to me, I don't get grace. You've probably said that to other people. I've said it to people. I don't think I get grace. I know not must be motivated by grace, but I just don't get grace. The reason I think that we don't get grace is, is for the most part, we view grace and we even view our baptism as simply the removal of our sins. And yes, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we don't really understand that anyway. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. And, and, yeah, you know, so, but that's about it. And, and thank goodness that my sins are taken away. But then I, I just start to fill it up again. What happens then? How does that all work? Well, anyway, so our, our, our normal diagram is, is kind of this, right? You've drawn it on a napkin more times. And you can imagine, you know, great, 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 great lives, just, just as he is buried and raised, we're buried and raised. But you know what? Romans, Romans 4 and Romans 6 both say something else. And uh, turn, turn with me to, to, to both of these. Romans 4. You guys hanging in there? All right. Here comes. Uh, you know, talking about Abraham, he says in verse 22, that is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification is basically just another form of the word righteousness in the original language. It's the righteousnessification of us, if you want to kind of look at it in the same way. But they're, they're, I mean, they look like such different words in the English, but in the in the Greek, they're, the, they're exactly the same thing. Uh, is, is is to be made righteous is to be justified. Uh, so just to keep that in mind here as, as we go through this. So you see here that we are credited with righteousness. Romans six has a, a bit of a, a take on this too in verse 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now, he was handed over to death for our sins, but he was raised, and so we are raised for our justification. The, the one thing that I think that we, we miss is that in this transaction, it's, it's more than a transaction, but just use that word for now, in this transaction, our sins are imputed to Christ, but his righteousness is imputed or credited to us. So we don't just come out of the waters of baptism, a vacuum, which nature abhors, waiting to be you know, filled with something else, and oh my goodness, I think it's going to be filled with sin two minutes afterwards. No, we come out filled. And what is it that we come filled with? The righteousness of Christ. Why didn't Jesus come to earth as a 30-year-old, say, where's the cross? Let's go. Why? Because he needed to accrue righteousness throughout his life. He needed to actually have, have, have been uh, accruing this righteousness to credit to us. So it's, it's not just, if, if, I, if I could use the, the analogy of a car. You know, I have, I have a, a, a van that I love to death. It's a, a Toyota. Van, It's got 306,000 miles on it, and it's sweet, but, you know, I've given up on it trying to look good. I mean, the, the, the front is just, you know, pockmarked by, by you know, 306,000 miles of little pebbles hitting it. None of the door handles really work. It's embarrassing when the kids have friends because you've got to open one door, go in through one side, open the other, and they get everybody in. You've got all these issues there. And it, it, it's one thing if I take the car to a really good car wash and even to a detailer and they pretty that thing up. I mean, really, really nice. But still going to have all the chip paint. It's all going to have the, the messed up handles. Still going to have all of those issues that are going on with it. Sometimes I think our view of grace is just that our really filthy car just had a really great bath, and maybe if I really get grace enough, I'll realize just how filthy that car is, and that it'll it'll kind of you know be be nonetheless made really clean. I mean, they even shampoo the rugs I mean, that clean. That's not grace. That's not this transaction. that. We've been given not just you know the removal of our dirt. We've been given the righteousness of Jesus. A righteousness that is not our own. Philippians 3.9 you know, talks of the same idea. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not the righteousness of me. So to, to carry this analogy over, it is not as though you just come out of the waters of baptism with your nasty van having been cleaned up. Instead, it's more like your van went through the TV show Pimp My Ride. <laughs> I'm I'm talking this thing's got nitro. I mean we got, we got captain's chairs inside. Suddenly it's like 20 feet longer, however that happened. Once you go in, it's plush, it's sweet, it's bows, it's big, fat rims, it's chrome, it's got dual exhaust, this baby fly, it'll take out anybody on the street. I mean, it's that sweet. Now, it's, it's one thing to have my van after the car wash, and, and while I do, I'm, I'm motivated to kind of keep it clean, but not really so. I'm like, you know what, I'm resigned to the fact that this thing's going to go bad soon enough, so you know what? Go ahead and drink your Slurpee in the back seat. It's happened 15 times again. Oh, it spilled. Guess what? <laughs> but, but that's not the grace that's been given us. The, 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 the ingredient or the element that we've been, I think, missing when we say we don't get grace is the degree to which we've been given, not just what's been taken away. And Jesus has pimped your ride. This van is sweet. And you know what? If I had a van like that... There is no way I'm parking that thing underneath that, that uh, you know, tree with the sap falling down from it. There is no way that thing's going near anything with a puddle. Anybody could get near it whatsoever. You're taking your shoes off. I actually got a special place for you to put your shoes before you come in. I mean, suddenly you're, you're, you're treating it with that kind of different effort. You value it. You cherish it. You've, you've recalibrated the, the kind of the value of this very thing. And so you do with yourself, too. You recalibrate the righteousness. That you really have because it's not your own. It's through the roof righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And, you know, when I actually start my day having prayed through this depth of grace, and I realize, all right, I'm about to walk into a 7-Eleven and there's going to be a magazine rack. And, of course, there's going to be like, you know, FHM and all those kind of like um, skin magazines that are, that are going to be there. And, and, and I've got to prepare myself saying, you know what? I've been given the righteousness of Christ. Just like I wouldn't park that van underneath that sappy tree, because I don't want to... Uh, likewise, I, I don't want... I mean, having... Now that I appreciate and in my prayer, that I, I, I love this holiness that I've been given. I recognize the depth of this this righteousness that I've been given. This purity that has really been given to me, and that is really mine. Now, you know what? I'm going to actually make sure that, that I value this, and I exemplify it by the way I live my life. And, but this righteousness, to, to kind of extend the metaphor even more, doesn't just turn your car into something really sweet. I mean, it turns it into kind of like, a, like an ambulance, but a cool ambulance that has capacity to do good for, for, for an amazing, uh, amazing uh, purposes all throughout our lives. And so, so we're not just going to kind of get you know, stuck into civilian affairs. when We realize, my goodness, I have an ambulance, and I'm passing by a person who's lying on the side of the road, and I have an ambulance. It's not like I have my stinky old van and I can just kind of go by. And nobody... I have an ambulance. I better do something with this. And, and, and that's the depth of what it means when we look at the right side of, of, of this experience that's in our lives. We have been credited with more than we can begin to imagine. And let me encourage you, if you really want to get grace, and I know that you've got it for sure, just recognize that we've been baptized. And when we've been baptized, we have been credited with this kind of righteousness. And Ephesians 4 says, it's not just some sort of juristic righteousness that some Protestants say. It's true righteousness, true holiness that we really have. And so we live out true righteousness and true holiness by what it is that that we have been given. And if you want to get grace, get the depth of the truth of this, of who you are, and realize, oh my goodness, I've been given so much, I better do something with it. How great it is that I've been given all these things. Amen. Uh, you know, when, you, when we read Titus 3, it seemed to harken back a bit uh, to, to John 3, 5, because he said that you were saved not by any works you've done, you've been saved through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Or, in other words, you were saved through the big wash basin of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It sounds like being born of water and spirit. And, you know, when you read John 3, 5, it's a very important passage, especially for people who don't want it to mean baptism. The reason that is, is because people say, well, yes, there's a lot of passages that say you ought to be baptized. But there are no passages that say if you're not baptized, what will happen? Yes, there is. And it happens to be the most quoted passage on baptism through all the earliest centuries of the church. The go-to scripture for baptism was this, John 3, 5. I'll begin in verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly I say to you, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again or born from above. There's a double entendre with that Greek word anathen that's there. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. And so... People who want to deny that this is about baptism, they got all kinds of theories about how this doesn't mean baptism. And there are are numerous. But one thing that they'll say is, actually, what they're trying to say here is, look at the parallel between 5 and 6. And the parallel between 5 and 6 shows you that this is just talking about spiritual regeneration and not baptism. Because it says, flesh gives birth to flesh, that refers to water. Spirit gives birth to spirit, that refers to spirit. So five and six are in parallel. Five meaning born of water, flesh gives birth to flesh. Born of spirit, spirit gives birth to spirit. And so you see that can't refer to baptism as, as they go through that. And I, I've heard that argument plenty of times as I've, I've studied the Bible with people. The only problem is that's not the parallel. And a matter of fact, the parallel is so obvious that, that it ought to be able to just hit us upside the head. Here's the, here's the parallel. It's not between five and six. It's between three and five. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born, unless he is born again of water and spirit. That's the parallel. It doesn't get any better than that. Nowhere in the Bible does it actually get any better than that. Nowhere does it get any closer than that. And and the two things that hang in parallel at the end of this is anathen from above, and of water and spirit, uh, the probably the most respected New Testament scholar on prepositions is a guy by the name of Murray J. Harris. He wrote the definitive work on prepositions at the end of this encyclopedia called the Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament, and in, in, in there he talks about this special case where you have one preposition, like we have here. That in the Greek, I think it's Kai hudatas. I'm sorry, uh, ek hudatas Kai pneumatas. Uh, That's that phrase there of water and spirit, and but wherever you have a situation in the Greek language where one preposition governs two nouns, and those nouns don't have an article before them, like the, you know, so it's not born of the water and the spirit. Matter of fact, if neither one has it, then every single instance that he's been able to find, that is one event. The one preposition governs both nouns. And it can only be linked together as one singular event. And they cannot be split apart because the grammar is so tight in the construction of what Jesus said here. And so whatever of water and spirit means, it needs to then be a, uh, a parallel to what it means to be born from above. To be born from above is to be born of this one event of water and spirit. Uh, the other thing that you'll often hear too, right? And you know, we've, we've all encountered this, uh, that, well, to be born of water is you know, your womb water. Uh, being, being born, you know, it's, it's when, the, when, when the water breaks of a, of a mom, and, and that's physical birth that it's referring to. And so what Jesus is saying, first you need to be born physically, and then, you know, natural birth, and then later you need to have spiritual birth. Well, the only problem with that, nowhere in the Greek language presently or ever in the history of the Greek language did the phrase born of water ever refer to natural birth. Never, ever, 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 nor does it today. Nor does it really refer to that in any language today, as far as I know, to be born of water. Like, hey, when were you born of water? It's just not. However, what makes it even more ridiculous that anybody who would claim to in any way be a minister or a pastor or a teacher, or anything like that and claims to be a Christian, that they're doing mental gymnastics and doing uh, violence to the, to the scripture because they should know better? Uh, is that they really do try to hold to that idea that first you need to be born as a baby and then you need to be born spiritually. Because the, the obviousness of the Greek grammar ought to make it sure that they can't be two events. And then if it ever were two events, there's no way that being born of water could ever refer to being born as a baby. And you, you may have already seen this, but in John 1, we actually have John in the same language, in the same gospel, saying the phrase to be born Naturally. And even more amazingly, he uses a fluid to say to be born of with regards to natural birth. Uh, Look with me back a page to John 1. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Now, a lot of you, if you have a different translation, don't have the phrase born of natural descent or natural birth. And some of you with the 84 version of the, of the NIV have a, a, a little bit of a footnote there. What does your footnote read? Born of bloods. If you wanted to say natural birth is, is born of a liquid, And if Jesus wanted to say, first, you need to be born naturally, he would have said, first, you need to be born of bloods. But he doesn't say born of blood. And as a matter of fact, if this phrase were to be translated, first, you need to be born naturally and then later to be born uh, spiritually, then what he would have said, truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of bloods and born of the Holy Spirit. It It would have to actually be phrased that way and translated most likely that way. That's nowhere near what we have. We have the tightest phrasing of the one event of water and spirit that, that we could possibly have. It is definitely a reference to baptism. It is a reference to baptism. They were coming out to John asking him, why are you baptizing? Just just moments ago, are you the Messiah? Is that why you are baptizing? He says, no, 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 the one that comes will be the one that, that, that baptizes uh, of water and even spirit as he comes. And here you have the, the same construction of water and spirit that, that is given to us. Uh, it's interesting that when I had to do an exegetical paper on this passage, and, and during this time, my uh, professor at seminary was teaching on John. I didn't know he was going to teach on John, but I'd already committed to this passage for my, my semester-long paper. And he went through, and he actually put, put together a view that was completely opposite of, of what I was about to present But in the end, after I put my paper... And I was like, oh, this is not going to be easy. But I put my paper together. I felt like it was airtight. You know, I quoted every early church father, every person all the way up through, you know, even the Reformation. Everybody had the the same take on on everything that we just discussed. And I put it before him. And he actually called me into his office. And he he said, you know, it's it's not often the case, but I got to tell you, I I, I stand corrected on on it. I know. I was like, wow. Like, how cool is that? Like... (laughs) I didn't know why he was calling me into the office. Like, it could not have been anybody. He was such a humble guy. I mean, he's just a really great, humble guy. And, and because he just simply held to the scriptures, you know, it was that important to him. And it was, it was really terrific. Um, you know, there's a similar discussion that um, sometimes occurs on Acts 2.38 where, you know, we have to turn because we know that one so well. But repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you've probably heard people not like that the idea of for the forgiveness of sins doesn't mean the purposefulness of that preposition. In the Greek, it's ice, E I S, uh, for for lack of a better transliteration. So, ice, forgiveness of sins. Now, the preposition ice has a purposefulness behind it, and it's kind of towards towards a a certain direction that's there. And um, not because of grammar or linguistic issues, But there arose right around 1910, 1920, an idea that maybe maybe we could actually not have to deal with this verse in evangelical circles if we come up with this idea of a causal ice. And the idea of a causal ice is that you're not being baptized for this reason, but you're being baptized because the cause. In other words, I'm being baptized because of the forgiveness of sins, because I've already received the forgiveness of sins. I'm now being baptized, in a sense, to celebrate that. And, or, or some will say, with a respect to, or with a view towards, or they'll have any of these things, anything but the clarity of what's baptism for? To get your sins forgiven, because of the, the directness of the way that this is stated. You know, what's interesting is I, 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 um, I used to be on a, you know, they were like bulletin board lists. That, that would all correspond. And these guys were all Greek scholars, and I would be trying to write things or research things way beyond what I was able to do, and I would just ask them questions. But then I would also be like a lurker as I listened to their conversations, too, because they're really interesting, as they would wrestle with the grammar. Let me, let me just read to you some of the correspondence I read as some people were arguing whether uh, Acts 2.38 could have an issue of um, causal ice. And, um, and this, this is a, a scholar who, who actually writes this, um, And I'll uh, I'll tell you his name in a second here. Um, uh, Subject, not causal ice again. Oh, no. Dear colleagues, for what surely are theological reasons, the so-called causal meaning of ice is revived regularly on our list. With some regularity, the classic disproof is recited. But since list members come and go, the task is never over. Jeff Smelser, who calls himself a newcomer, has done us this service again. I quote his message at the end of this posting. I personally thank him since it usually has fallen on me to remind everyone of the easy-to-find literature it being mentioned in Bauer's English translations. The history of this imaginary causal use of ice is short. Julius Manti, and this is the scholar who, who initiated it, Julius Manti wrote an article arguing for it in 1923 in the Expositor. Four years later, in 1927, he listed it as meaning number seven in his own manual of grammar, citing at great length his own article as evidence. (laughs) He has a sarcastic exclamation mark. No one was convinced except those whose theology drove them to it. So over the next two decades later, he read a paper at a meeting of the SBLE in Cincinnati at Hebrew Union College, again arguing for it. I was present, as was Wilbur Gingrich. If any of you know Wilbur Gingrich, he's, he's actually the compiler of 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 one of the main dictionaries. Um, A friend of mine whose office was across the street from mine at the University of Chicago, he was translating Bauer, it was uh, Bauer, Newton, and Gingrich for UC Press, and I was a young instructor and a member of the board examinations. Wilbur Gingrich stood up and commented that this sort of thing was grist for our mill as we edit Bauer for English readers, meaning he was going to include it. Manti responded that a copy would certainly be sent to him. I stood up and questioned Manti's translation of the non-New Testament passages he cited, but of course, none of us had the text in front of us, so it ended there. Upon my return to Chicago, I reported to Ralph Marcus, who was a scholar, whom I was assisting in preparing two volumes of Philo for the Loeb Classical Library. Showing him my notes of the Manti lecture, Marcus, one of the great linguists of our times, laughed and dropped it. When Manti's paper was published in the JBL, I showed it to Marcus with a reminder of our conversation about it. We sat down, read the passages Manti had cited. In every single case, Manti failed to understand the Greek and was palming off his own mistranslation. I offered to flesh out Marcus's response, which was sent to the JBL as a rejoinder. Believe it or not, when that came out, Manti dug up more passages and published a second article defending this non-meaning of ice as causal. Marcus himself then penned another reply, exploding these claimed translations as well. That should have settled it once and for all. One obvious aspect of this exchange is that Marcus was a Jew and had no theology of baptism one way or another. But Manti put on the pressure and Gingrich decided to reference all four articles in his translation, which may be just as well since it gave references to Marcus's demolition of causal lies for future readers in English to see. German readers of Bauer had never heard of this, of course. Uh, It was originally German translated into English. Manti chose to write... Me, a hateful letter in his own handwriting, denouncing me as a fool, an ignoramus, and a young whippersnapper. Marcus was too far prestigious to attack him. I wrote him back telling how much I liked his little manual, except for that one flaw, and assured him that I had nothing but admiration for him as a person. He never replied. As uh, As several have pointed out, this list for discussion of the Greek language of the Bible is not for theological argument. Please let's not sneak theology in under the rubric of a fantasy meaning of a Greek preposition. And it's not often you get like, like, primary resources like that, uh, with guys that are still alive. But, but here it is, this, this fictitious idea that in any way in Acts 2.38 that for bapt I mean, for the forgiveness of sins could mean anything but a purposefulness of baptism for the clarity of that for which we are, are to really have received it. Uh, and in, in conclusion, the deeper that you run with any of these things, the more amazing that it becomes. There is no fear of, of, of more scholarship. There's no fear of, of, of an intellectually honest uh, extra approach to all of this. In the end, we come away more and more secure, like, wow! I- I really was born again. I really was given the Holy Spirit. I really was credited with righteousness. My sins really were completely wiped away. I really do have this new life. It all really is true. It's been given to me in God. How great is our Christ? How different is my life? How great is the cause that I have? It's not to to have all of this now just to kind of live some sort of life of passivity, but to recognize we've been given all of this, gift upon gift, amazing mercy upon mercy to be used by God with this gratitude, with this greater realization of our grace to make a great difference for a world that needs to know this desperately. Thank you.